What's up, friends? I'm Tara P, and you're listening to Positive Perspectives. Well, guys, how is it going? I am just hanging out in my closet, got all my work done for the day. It's been a pretty busy day. Tuesdays are probably my busiest days of the week. They start off bright and early at 5.30 a.m. I have couple different side gigs I've been doing for a while now and one of those I work at uh, my gym studio it's called Pure Bar so two mornings a week I go in there at 5 30 in the morning and open the gym for them and get that opened up so have that Tuesday mornings and then right after that I went grocery shopping this morning and then right after that I went and donated some plasma and then right after that I've been working all day so this has kind of been my first little break I've had um should be working out, but decided I'd rather be chatting with you guys. It was a good excuse to not go to the gym today, so. But yeah, after this, I still have some errands I need to get done. It feels like I've been a little extra busy lately, and I feel like why one of that reasons is, I don't think I've talked about this with you guys yet, but if you are close with me or have chatted with me recently, you've definitely heard, but one of our big goals for 2021 is to be completely debt-free. So Rance and I sat down right before the new year started and kind of looked at what all of our student loans we have left, and then he has a little bit of medical debt because, well, if you know Rance, he is constantly getting hurt, it seems. Um, So sat down and really looked at it and tried to live by a budget and like really live by a budget, you know, not be like, ooh, let's like try and do this. But like, no, like, okay, we have a hundred dollars a month to go out and spend on like going out to eat food. Okay. We have this much a month for groceries. Like there's clothing items that we want right now, you know, not in the budget this year. If there are people that want to go out to lunch, maybe not in the budget this week. So it's just kind of been a little bit of an adjustment period and also has been an opportunity that we've been trying to, you know, hustle a little bit more and figure out how can we make a little bit more money so this short period of sacrifice can be even shorter. So as I mentioned, I have my pure bar, we donate plasma for a little bit of extra money. Um, Most recently, I've started doing DoorDash. And if you've heard me talk about it, I have actually been like obsessed with being a what they call a dasher, you guys like, they should have a referral program because if so, I feel like I'd be making bank just off that because I truly enjoy like just sitting in my car. You guys know I love listening to podcasts. So I'll just put a podcast on, drive around. I've been able to check out like new areas in Boise, new new neighborhoods. And since we're not trying to spend a ton of money right now, it's also been like a great free activity. I'll be like, Rance, like I saw this really cool neighborhood. Like let's go house hunting. And so I actually have really enjoyed it. So whenever I have a little bit of free time in the evenings, especially like this evening, I will just go out and dash for a couple hours and it's been great. Make about 50 bucks a shift or if you want to call it a shift every couple hours, just whatever I can do at this point to, like I said, make any extra money. But overall, just super grateful that there are some extra ways we can make money and to have Rance through all this and be a team. It's been really great to feel supported through this new chapter that we're entering. So 
Other than that, before we get to our guests this week, I just want to thank everyone who's been so supportive over this season two relaunch and the launch of my website. It's been just so great to hear people reaching back out, talking about their favorite episodes or something that really resonated with them. Those that have been able to check out my website or bought some merchandise and sent me photos like It just makes my day to see that you guys are enjoying this and engaging, and it's why I keep doing it. So if you guys haven't yet, go ahead and check out my website, PositivePerspectivesPod.com. Like I said, you can find some merchandise, hats, beanies, socks, whatever. And then like I always mention, support the podcast, share it with a friend, write a review, whatever it is. It really just helps keep things going and moving in a positive direction. So thank you guys so much for always supporting it. So for our guest this week, we have Kevin, and he comes on and shares his story that early on in his life, he got caught up in addiction and drugs and alcohol. And and you guys, this is something that almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction. So this is something that is affecting so many different people. And it was something that Kevin thought he could handle and that he kind of knew more than what other people were telling him. But he hit a point that he said that they call it the gift of desperation, that he knew that he was not going to be able to do this alone and that he needed to go seek help. So he finally did. And while he was seeking help, he ended up finding a group of men that he described as like his three wise men that really helped him through that journey that helped to encourage him that he can get through it. And looking back, he knew that he truly needed those men through that journey. And so once he was in a good place that he felt confident in himself and where he was going, he knew that he was one he knew that he was wanting to kind of be that person on the other side that could help somebody else get through that tough or troubling time. So he ended up going back to school and ended up becoming a counselor and now owns his own business where he offers a variety of different addictive and treatment services. And since then, he's actually become a published author. And his book, The New Prophet, comes from a perspective of a father telling his son about many of the definitions and life lessons that he learned. And it really focuses on the inner human experience. And just from the little bit of his book that I've been able to read so far, it was just so amazing because I feel like it offers you new definitions to a lot of words or experiences in life that you can define with that through his imagery and symbolism because he's so poetic in his writing. So it is something that I think anyone would benefit from that can just offer you a new perspective. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. So please sit back and enjoy with our guest, Kevin. All right, friends. So today I have Kevin Clark and he is a certified substance abuse counselor and an author. And Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Tara. Absolutely. I was so excited when you reached out to be on this podcast and then continued to reach out since I struggled to get back to you through the holidays. But as I was mentioning, I'm just so excited to kind of dive into your story and then see how you got to write the book, just because I haven't been able to dive into this topic with everyone. So I just kind of want to thank you in advance for being willing to be vulnerable and share your story to help others. Yeah, absolutely. I no problem with that at all. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's just get started and just kind of go back to the beginning so I can get to know you a little bit better and so can our guests. So tell me about who you were as a child and what were you like growing up? Okay. So uh, as a child, I had a very active imagination, a strong imagination for sure. 
I had really big and loud feelings is how I describe them. So I struggled with anger a lot as a child. Um, I was also fairly impulsive. Um, I would do something and then be like, oh my God, why did I just do that kind of thing? Um, and my son has the same thing. I see it in him. He's like, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. You just need to learn how to slow down, you know? Um, so I had a hard time slowing down. I think, uh, just, and I think it was a lot of it had to do with my emotional reactivity, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, I was also really outgoing. I liked superheroes a lot. So even when I was, I think I was in first, second grade, first or second grade, I started drawing my own superhero, the master of disaster. He was uh, me as a superhero and I wrote like comics and stuff. And then I got my mom to get me like a leotard to wear under my clothes. Like I like, I went all out with this thing of like identifying as this superhero personality. So that was a little bit about me. I mean, I became the president of my elementary school, um, which was fun because I got to be on TV every day, which seemed cool at the time. And, uh, you know, just, I was really entrepreneurial, like we didn't have much. So I always like found ways, I, but I also had like, probably I wanted for things, you know? Um, so I found, I tried to sell walking sticks. I just knocked on people's doors, trying to sell twigs to them. Then I had like a paper mask business, then a lawn care business. And then, oh, then I did magic shows for kids' birthday parties when I was, uh, in fifth grade, I was making like 50 wow. bucks a show. So that was pretty good deal. And then, you know, I fell into addiction in middle school and that's when I, and then I became like, you know, I sold drugs for a living, which was not great and doesn't have a uh, optimistic future in it. Right. And, uh, you know, then I, I'm getting way ahead of myself but as a child. Yeah, I, that's me in a nutshell. Just going back a little bit, because it sounds like you had a lot of different personalities as a child. I mean, you mentioned that you were like impulsive and very creative and very entrepreneurial. And um, so did you feel like you were supported in a lot of your different roles as a child? Yeah, I mean, I think I think my parents were definitely supportive. I remember my dad would like let me come to his work and try and sell his coworkers my paper masks. Um my mom was supportive to me emotionally in that she taught me emotional regulation stuff when I had a hard time with my anger. She'd have me draw my anger um, or do deep breathing exercises. So she was pretty um, on top of that. So I was definitely uh, well supported as a child, I think. You know, I mean, they, uh, they loved me a lot. Uh, they were really involved in service in the community, which taught me to be involved in that too. I think to an extent they were like so involved that as like time went on, I kind of, uh, I wish they had been maybe a little bit more involved in my own life, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't fault them at all, but I think like maybe in the teenage years, especially, um, things might've turned out, turned out differently. And I'm grateful they turned out the way they did because I wouldn't be who I am and where I am without it. I had a brother who's like, uh, I think he's like a year and a half older than me. Um, so we were pretty close growing up. Actually, I didn't want to learn how to read because when he learned how to read, we weren't playing as much. So <laughs> I, 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 I exerted my will and defined, I, I was defined in not learning how to read for a year. 
because wow. I just and I then I fell in love with reading of course like once I started reading but, <laughs> but but yeah we were really close we still are close um I mean we're not like the kind of siblings that talk every day but we're the type of siblings that'll like drop anything and like be there if we need each other sort of thing yeah that's a pretty funny memory that now you're an author and at first you tried to boycott reading. So yeah. staying cool kids that maybe things will change. You might enjoy it one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But so we talked, you mentioned briefly that in middle school was kind of the time that things maybe started to change and started getting into some bad things. And so was that just because of a wrong crowd that you were hanging out with or were you rebelling at that point? Um, well, in between that transition period, I was sexually abused by a family friend. And that I think was like, it was like, uh, you know, I hear like genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger as far as like a lot of disorders go. Um, and I think that was the case, like with my impulsivity and my emotional reactivity, it's my emotional sensitivity really is what it was. Um, and the way that i the way that I'm a deep thinker um, I think when that stuff happened and I was like I went into survival mode so when drugs came around it was like what I was waiting for because I was so like I was hurt bad and I was not comfortable in my own skin and this gave me a way to kind of escape so I mean I drank alcoholically from from the beginning from when I was 13 and um got further and further into like the depths of the oblivion of addiction as time went on, you know? So I think that's kind of what set me up. I mean, I definitely hung out with a partying crowd too, which made it easy. Um, but I think we, we seek out, you know, those sorts of things if that's like what our objective is. Cause I was a skateboarder and in my school, the skateboarders definitely partied. I remember like the skateboarders, like in the, you know, the town over, there was like straight edge skateboarders. So, I mean, if I'd wanted to like be sober, I could have been, but you know, I didn't want to be sober at all, Yeah. but I stopped caring about school and I just wanted to like party, you know, more and more kind of got lost, you know, in that process and really disconnected from the truth of who I am. And, uh, you know, the shame story just kind of spiraled, you know, down further and um just kind of bought into that idea that like maybe i'm a monster or a horrible person like you know like the shame shame is like really convincing in that way um so i just yeah. kind of re retreated from reality yeah and like you said shame can be the worst monster and especially because it's coming from within yourself and so at what point did it take for you to feel like okay maybe this is an addiction it was, I think it was apparent that I was like using, but my parents didn't know to the extent I was using. Um, and that's like a natural thing. You know, we kind of hide from the truth of like problems that we don't know how to solve and denial. Um, and it's, you know, extremely prevalent in addiction. So for them not to see how bad things were for me, it's totally normal. Um, and I, you know, I identified with that. And for me, I mean, looking back, I was like surviving through my addiction. So I couldn't picture life without it because it was the only thing kind of holding me together, even though I wasn't a functioning addict, like, except that I functioned as an addict. Um, 
I guess what happened was I ended up hospitalized when I was 21. And at that point, I knew I didn't want to use anymore. I didn't want to drink anymore. But I didn't realize to the extent of my powerlessness over it. So with every cell of my being, I meant it that I wasn't going to use again. I got high the day I got out. I got drunk the next day. Two weeks later, I went back to the hospital. Then I was like, okay, I'll try psychiatry. I'll try therapy. I'm still not going to go to like these 12-step meetings because, you know, there was that part of me that knew that's where alcohol goes to die. And they talk about a day at a time, but they're really talking about not drinking the rest of my life. And no, thank you. So I spent the next year and a half trying to control it, um, miserably, miserably trying to control it. Um, you know, I blacked out and then I was doing cocaine again. I tried like the weed and beer thing. And um, eventually the police intervened and I went to jail for 11 months. And that's where I got sober. That's where I got treatment. That's where I finally crawled into like the rooms of recovery. That's where I finally, at 19, you know, I thought I knew everything. By the time I was 22, I thought, well, maybe everything I know is wrong. And I'll just do what these people tell me to do and see what happens. So, wow, kind of like I've tried everything. Like, apparently, what I'm doing isn't working, and so I have nothing left to try if it's my method. Yeah, yeah, they call it like the gift of desperation. So, like, I was desperate, and I didn't, I knew I had enough clarity to know that I didn't want my life to be like some of these institutionalized guys that were in there that thought, like, this is okay to like you go out there. You know, you run the streets for a while, then you come back in here and you go back out there. And like to really, that seemed like a scary thought process to me. And like I said, I had been supported well as a child and I did everything I could while I was in there to better myself. I did four level, levels of anger management. I started going to a trauma group for like sexual trauma. I went to six months of a drug treatment program. I did a college course. I went to the church, the AA meetings, whatever they had, like I did it because I just was trying to be productive with the time that I had there. Um, And at that point, was any of that required or mandated or was that all just personal decisions? Yeah, none of it was required. Um, Treatment, uh, some people were in treatment just because they wanted it to look good when they went in front of the judge again um because it was treatment inside the facility but that's not that wasn't my motivation um or i wouldn't i I still wouldn't i wouldn't be sober today if it was right yeah and so going through that did you have like other people that were going through those programs with you that you were able to like learn through other people or is it a very personalized journey yeah definitely i mean there was I talk about this on some of the other podcasts I've been on, but there was three men, three wise men that came into my life at the exact right time to save my life. One of them was another inmate and he had already been done a couple years in prison and was back for like some other stuff. And he had been clean before um, in recovery before and was working with a sponsor on the outside. And this is a guy who had had an unsuccessful suicide attempt and a blackout. And I, he was extremely loving and he kind of like gave me the first liter like AA literature to read. And I did my first 
fifth step with him, which is pretty much like getting super vulnerable with somebody and telling them everything about your resentments, fears, insecurities, um, you know, harms that you've done other people, you know, that sort of thing. So we got permission to use an attorney booth to have that experience. And uh, I mean, I cried during it and I shook, I sweat. And at the end of it, you know, I think, I I think we prayed together and he put his hand on mine and told me I wasn't alone. And it was for the first time, like, that I could remember, like, ever, like, really knowing, like, I'm not alone because I had felt so alone for so long. And I didn't think that anybody could possibly, you know, understand me. Um, And he did. So he was one of them. And then Jim was this other guy. He was an elderly World War II vet who was a volunteer who brought meetings into the jail. And he just had lots of wisdom for me um, from simple stuff to you just need more confidence to a little bit more deep stuff to like, you can't open a door with a closed fist kind of adages like that, that I would take and just like meditate on for a while. So he was like a loving grandfather figure for me. And then my counselor, Carl, he, uh, he provided a safe space where I could be like, you know, vulnerable with another man and uh, just show me genuine compassion. And he was enthusiastic about his job. And I needed all three of those guys, I think, to make it. And Carl inspired me to become a therapist because of the impact he had on my life. I was like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing with my life anymore. So I'm going to go back to school and go and do this whole thing and help other people like he helped me because I know the power of helping one person and how it ripples outward, you know, and affects the community in such a positive way um, versus like how addiction just kind of like a devastating tornado ripping through people's lives. So, yeah, that's awesome. And were these three men, did they enter your life like at the same time or were they like scattered out throughout your recovery period? Yeah, like when I went to jail, they all kind of came into my life at the same time. I was staying with the guy Keith in the dorm that we were both housed in. Uh, Jim was bringing the meetings in, and Carl was my therapist when I got into treatment. I still talk to Carl sometimes. Jim and Keith have both passed away. They died sober. Um, But, yeah, I talked to Carl every few years. You know, I called him and told him I wrote a book because he was the first person to tell me. He's like, I think you, I see you writing a book one day. And uh, so I did. Wow. That's a beautiful story. And that's amazing that you still have that relationship with Carl and that he's impacted your life. I mean, in more than one way is the fact that he inspired you to become a therapist. And like you said, was the first person to even plant that seed uh, to tell you that you might write, that you should write a book one day. When he did tell you that, do you remember like your thought? Were you like, maybe you're at that point where you just like, okay, Carl. (laughs) Uh, I think it was like a maybe, but like not, but then I started to hear it from more people as time went on, like, and people like, I really see you like writing books. And it became like a knowing that I think was always in me. But then when I heard it, it almost like was a truth that started to reverberate. Mm -hmm. So after you were released, um, what was your journey like? Well, while I was in there, I found out he's still my best friend today, Aaron, um, Aaron Gambini, majorly amazing human being. He and I used drugs together and drank together for years. And I found out he had gone to rehab a week before I went to jail and he was going to 12 step meetings. So I linked up with him. So in that sense, I had this like 
you know, guy to go through like everything together with. So we've been on this journey literally for over 14 years together. And that was majorly helpful because I'm not the most like make friends with everybody, social butterfly kind of person. So it was really nice to have like somebody already there. Um, I mean, what it was like, I, uh, I had to learn how to be an employee. I had to learn how to be a friend, how to be a son, um, just how to be a worker among workers. Another thing Carl taught me that it was really helpful was paying dues. So some people get out and they expect the world owes them, but really it's the other way around. And so, you know, I got a job breaking my back for peanuts for a land nursery and was happy and I didn't miss work like ever. <laughs> and, uh, I just, um, I worked there while I went to school and, you know, it's been a progression, you know, to now owning my own business, working part-time at a rehab, um, having a beautiful family, writing a book, all this cool stuff. So it's just, I mean, it's been a progression and an evolution for sure the whole time. Yeah. What business did you start? Well, I mean... So at first I was, so after I got done landscaping and I graduated school, I was still surveying land at this point. And then I got a job working part-time as a counselor at an addiction treatment center. Then I went full-time as a mental health counselor that did this like housing and mental health services. So working with a lot of like severe mentally ill there. And then after a year and a few months of that, I came back to the treatment center I originally worked at full time and knowing they were being bought out by Recovery Unplugged. And I worked there and they promoted me to like the the IOP manager, then the program manager. And then um, somewhere along the way, about when I decided like, when I figured out what the book was going to be that I wrote, I knew I was going to start working for myself. Um, so then in 2020, I started Excelsior Addiction Services, which is my own counseling company um, where I do individual and group counseling for people with substance use or especially like substance use and trauma. Um, because I know a lot about treating trauma as well. Um, Cause to me, I don't think you can really treat addiction effectively without trauma informed care. Well, I just love that you were able to just take your story and some of your past struggles and learn from it. And now you're able to kind of take all your knowledge and then give back to others and not only be able to offer your knowledge as in like, uh, I went to school and like, this is what I've learned, but fully like I have learned it in that sense, but I've also learned it in going through a similar aspect and like I've studied and I've tried a lot of these methods and so mm-hmm. i think that in itself is so important yeah yeah because even if i don't tell them like all the details of my sordid past which i wouldn't do you know i use limited self-disclosure if it benefits right. the client but um i do think even just being able to speak the language you know and know what they're thinking because you've thought it too like i mean you just easily more easily establish that rapport that trust um like and helps really create a safe place so yeah i mean i I am grateful that all the dark places i've gone because i know where you know i know how to get out of them for sure 
And so you mentioned that at one point, finally, this idea of what the book was going to be kind of came to fruition. And so what was it? You said that many people throughout your life had kind of mentioned, like, I see you writing a book. And so do you recall the moment of when you realized what you wanted to write about? Uh, I knew, so I had read The Prophet early in my recovery by Khalil Gibran. And then a few years ago, I studied The Prophet with a group of guys that I meet with every Tuesday. We just check in on our lives and we study like, you know, spiritual self-help kind of books, that sort of thing. Um, like the Tao, the prophet, the presence process. Um, what else? I don't know. A few other ones. But anyway, so after I studied it with them, I, I got the, I was inspired to, you know, write a, not even a version of it, but something inspired by it that's modern um, and that more appeals even more so to the emotions than the original prophet, because this is like all the stuff that I work with every day. And I don't know, I just think, you know, using metaphor to teach is such a powerful way and really connects with people and reaches people. And, you know, now I've had that confirmed because, you know, when people are reading my book and they're like moved to tears, I know I'm reaching them. Um, I just wanted to help people on a, I can, you know, just like this podcast, you can reach people all over the place, right? Anywhere in the world. And with a book, you can do that too. And I just, uh, I figured that would be my start. I'm, I'm working on a second book, which is more me um, and less like poetic language and more self-helpy experiential stuff. That is something that I did want to mention about the book, just from what you sent me in the small portions I was able to read is I love the poetic writing about it because the way that like your words are able to kind of like transcribe those different like words or emotions or feelings it's just like I'm like you took words out of my brain that like I didn't even know I had that thought but when you said it I'm like yes like that's exactly what like love is or fear is or forgiveness and and so I just thought it was very interesting how one you take the perspective of a father kind of sharing this knowledge and information with his son. Cause I think that's a moment that we all hope we can have with our parents one day is like, please like tell me about all your life lessons that you've learned. But like I said, the fact that you're able to do it in such a poetic way, I think is really, really beautiful. So thank you. Yeah. And so what kind of inspired you to, I mean, I know you mentioned the prophet and I have not read that book before, but mm -hmm. those different topics in the different chapters that you have in your books, are those coming specifically from the prophet or where do those topics come from? No. So the prophet, there might've been a little bit of overlap because I think he talks about like joy and sadness in the prophet, which I talk about both those subjects too. But the prophet is about, it's a guy who's getting on a ship to go home from the city of Orphalese and these different people from the city I'll go up to him and be like, tell me about buying and selling and tell me about marriage and tell me about prison. And it's like, I mean, much more poetic language than I wrote because this guy was like a poet. Like that's what he was, a Lebanese American poet. And it was published in 1928, I think written in 1923. Um, but it's more like the institutions of life. So like the outside stuff, whereas the book I wrote has more to do with like the inner human experience. Um, which I think is more applicable today because 
I mean, we're becoming more emotionally aware as a society, I hope. Um, it seems that way. And, you know, we're talking about things in a different way than we have before and really understanding all these subjects and they're getting destigmatized um, and they're affecting everybody. You know, it's, it's applicable to everybody. So it's more of the inner human experience is what I kind of targeted versus that's more of like all these other aspects of life that play into that inner human experience in the first profit. Yeah. And I like how you kind of modernized it, like you said, to talk about more like the inner human experience, because I think we are as a society talking more about emotional intelligence and the importance about mental health and what that means. And so, like you said, just being able to kind of relate it to a modern day audience is really cool, too. So um, who do you think would benefit like from this book? Who did you envision your audience when you were writing it? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone could benefit from it potentially um but i would say if you enjoy poetry you might benefit from it if you have been in therapy before you'd benefit from it um if you've been thinking about going to therapy you'd probably benefit from it um if you are a therapist yourself you definitely get value out of it if you're in recovery um you know i think it could probably benefit a lot of people if they you know have an open mind and they read it but you know anyone more interested in you know the inside job so to speak of you know or wanting to like or doing work with their feelings um and kind of like dissect them a little bit more i'd say yeah yeah you know it's like yeah to deepen your understanding of it but don't have to read like a you know huge book about it like I kind of do it in these short excerpts that are manageable so if you're struggling with like something you could look up that one part in the book and maybe get a new insight on it you know or you could read it a year from now and be in a totally different place emotionally or spiritually and see things in a way you hadn't before because when I read the prophet the second time immediately I was seeing things that I hadn't seen when I was like a couple years sober. I was like, Oh wow, this could mean this and this. And, you know, cause when you paint a picture with words and metaphor, you know, it's like the Dr. Dyer quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So all of a sudden I'm looking at these things differently because of this like way that they're being portrayed to me. You know? Yeah. And cause your perspective, your life perspective at that moment was different than the first time you experienced it. So that's really interesting. You mentioned that you're writing a second book that's going to be a little bit of a different writing style, but is it going to be like a second book of The New Prophet or something that's totally separate? Something totally separate. It's more like a big focus on a lot of the work I've been doing on myself um, the last couple of years and the work that I do with clients. But, you know, I talk a lot about mirror work and there's some stuff with shadow work and there's stuff with, uh, you know, forgiveness and healing trauma and I don't know I got I got it all kind of mapped out but I'm still in the early stages of it that's amazing and what is like the process of writing a book like when do you expect to launch it at this point do you have any ideas this one I don't know the, this last one came to me suddenly like I knew what it, the concept was but then last spring, I just had this creative outpouring of an outline with like the characters' names and like different topics. And then when I wrote it, I wrote it in seven weeks of this. Oh my 12 gosh! Week, yeah, of this twelve-week process. 
Um, it's called the artist way by Julian Cameron. And essentially it's a spiritual path to creativity, but part of it is you write three pages every day and it's just writing. You're not even supposed to be thinking really like you kind of set your intention the night before. And then you just like the stream of consciousness almost. Sounds um, hard. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I got the book from. It, yeah. It was definitely not, I mean, you're supposed to do it every morning, but I did them like literally whenever I could, because I'm not a morning person. I got kids, I got the full-time job. So yeah, um, yeah. I wrote it like at lunch or whenever and I would just write and, uh, it just started to unfold more as I wrote, like some of the topics I mapped out beforehand and some came to me during it. Like I wrote about diversity and collective trauma and that was definitely inspired by George Floyd being killed um, because there was like, you know, all this surge of uh, energy and just paying attention. Like it just, uh, I mean, it was there. So definitely some of it right. came like, directly from what was happening in the moment or had just happened and then some of it's like stuff that I teach on like when I'm like running groups in treatment center because we have like principles every day you know and some of these like coincide with those principles so it's stuff that I've already like internalized you know quite a bit over the years yeah that's cool that you were able to pull from like different aspects of your life in order to kind of put this together into one book when you first started like writing down these thoughts and doing the seven or the 12 week program the journaling did you think like oh this could be a book or like when did it kind of hit you like yeah I knew right away um like as soon as I got like a page into I think like the first day I was like oh this is my opportunity to write that book now and I started I, I was writing all by hand and I was like literally like sending the pages over to my dad, like as I was doing it and he was like transcribing the stuff, you know, I'd like, I'd like circle the parts that made sense. and was like, Hey, type this up. And then, uh, you know, so after the first seven weeks and I was done writing it, um, then I already had it all typed up and like manageable. And then I sent it over to my brother who's like, you know, brilliant writer. And I asked him to help me with the editing and so I, I started doing everything like simultaneously kind of so. and that's even cooler that it was able to be like a little family affair and have some extra help from family that's awesome yeah yeah I've had some good help in my life for sure and my dad he used to have his own publishing company like it was you know a small company and it wasn't <laughs> something he did for a long time but he had some knowledge of the publishing business and like I said my brother was a great writer and my uncle helped with editing too because I had like different I went through like three edits I guess was it hard to pull that together and I mean you said you started in the spring so what is that like nine months is that was it hard yeah, to I mean, put it together or were you just like we're going let's keep it keep the train moving yeah I just was just like we're going let's keep it moving wow. and just kind of trusted the process and um but this next book is going to take a lot longer I already know that um, it's going to be longer in, in content. It's going to have more content. Um, and I'm going to be, it's going to be a little bit more thoughtful and not just writing from like a space of presence and like flow, which is kind of what I went for with the last one. Yeah. Interesting. Well, th Kevin, thank you so much just for one opening up and sharing about your life story. And then two, just talking 
about your book. I'm really excited for people to have the opportunity to go get it. Like you mentioned, I mean, this book could really be for anyone who's wanting to just dive into the inner human experience of someone's life. And it's just beautifully, like I said, poetically written. And so just the small bits I got to read already, I loved it. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. So just to close up, we'll do the countdown question game, the three, two, one. Mm -hmm. So what would you say were maybe three of the biggest lessons or takeaways you kind of have learned through your story or life journey? Um, I guess to be yourself, to love yourself, to trust yourself. I think those are. Yeah, I love it. Um, number two, yeah. two truths and a lie. Okay. So as I mentioned, I was playing this with some of the other guests, so I will start with mine and all of mine happen to be related to food. So it's about dinner time. Um, <laughs> so the first one is, um, my favorite candy bar is Butterfingers. Um, one of my top or favorite veggies is Brussels sprouts. And I chew probably four pieces of gum per day. Okay. Uh, um, I think that the first one is the lie. You are correct. Is not your favorite candy bar. You're right. Is Butterfingers anyone's okay. favorite candy bar? <laughs> I mean, if they didn't get stuck to your teeth so much, they might be, but. I have a friend that she likes Butterfinger blizzards and she's like, she doesn't like the Butterfinger candy, but she says in the blizzard, they're a little harder, so they don't stick to your teeth as much. Hmm. So, that that makes know. sense. Might have to try it, but... Okay, your turn. Two truths and a lie. Okay. Uh, I was named after a monkey. Um, I hate pizza. And I skateboard at least once a week. I am guessing the lie is that you hate pizza. That's correct. I love pizza. I, <laughs> <laughs> Who hates pizza? I'd be really sad if that was your truth. <laughs> no, I'm kind of normalized the pizza diet. <laughs> yes. Um, what monkey were you named after? That sounds amazing. His name was Kevin. It was just in a monkey counting book. That's why my name is Kevin McNevin, because my mom's maiden name was McNevin, and my brother was reading this counting book, and they wanted a girl both times, but my brother got my dad's name, and I was a boy also, so I ended up with the name Kevin McNevin, and I was named after monkey number seven. So. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, final one. What is one positivity act that you can challenge yourself or others to engage in this week? Um, I can text someone that I don't normally text and tell them I love them and that I'm thinking about them. Yeah. So, if someone outside of my normal thinking and cinema, just a I love you text. Exactly. It's something that is like so simple that we could all do every single day, but sometimes we just need that like external reminder to be like, okay, like, let me just take the 10 seconds that it would take to do that. And it would probably not only make your day, but absolutely make the other person's day. So I love that. Totally. One. And sometimes I don't even text my daughter. Like, cause I have an 18, 18, almost 19 year old. She's my stepdaughter. And then I'm like, every, usually I mean, it comes to me I'm like, I should just text her and tell her I love her. And I like, and I think that's really important to do because I mean, we all need to hear that. And 
Yeah, and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So what better right. day than today to do that? Love it. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. If people wanted to reach out and find you or get your book, where would be the best place they could do that? Uh, well, I mean, I have Instagram and Facebook, Kevin McNevin Clark. Um, also, you can find me at excelsioraddictionservices.com. That's Excelsior spelled E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R. It's not super easy. Um, but there, there's even a, a author page and a link to if they want to buy from me personally a signed copy, or you can always go on Amazon to find the book. I mean, it can be found lots of places. So amazing. And guys, I will also go ahead and post and tag him too. So that'll link to his Instagram. And from there, you guys should be able to find everything. So go ahead and support and check out Kevin McNevin Clark. Thank you so much again, Kevin. I really appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. Are you guys ready for the positive perspective of the week? So for this week's positive perspective, I was watching the news when they interviewed an 11-year-old boy named Joe Whale out of the UK, and his nickname is the Doodle Boy because when he was in school last year, his teachers were constantly getting on him because he was just doodling nonstop in class, and they felt like he wasn't focusing, just working on his doodles, and so his parents were like, okay, how can we, how can we turn this around? How can we, like, filter this into like something positive so they ended up putting him into like an after-school program art class and this is where his art just really started to take off and after he started to do that a local company actually saw his artwork and want and wanted him to do a doodle on their entire wall for them and that just kind of started the snowball effect where from there he started a youtube page he has an instagram page he'll do work for different people and so it is just so cool to see how a family was able to get creative and turn something that somebody looked at as a negative, like his doodling is a problem, and they were able to just maybe change the perspective and filter it in a more appropriate, positive way. So I just thought that was a really neat story. And if you guys want to go check him out, his Instagram handle is thedoodleboy.co.uk. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Positive Perspectives. And remember, guys, to keep spreading positivity because I truly think it's contagious. Love you guys. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for sticking around and listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. I'd love to hear what you enjoyed, what topics you'd like to hear, and it would really mean a lot to me. Episodes will be released every Wednesday, and you guys can also find me on Instagram at Positive Perspectives Podcast. Thanks guys and tune in next week for another dose of positivity.